Exodus chapter 34. And this is uh, when God is instructing Moses to write out a new uh, set of tablets. And so Moses and God, they're up on the mountaintop. And verse 4 tells us that Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first one. And he rose early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai. Here's what we read in verses 5 and 6. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, as we explore your word uh, and as we explore one of the beautiful aspects of your character, may we just be drawn closer to you and have a fuller appreciation for the love you have for us. We pray in your name. Amen. So when God decides to proclaim his name to Moses, the first word that he uses to describe himself is compassionate. So above all the other attributes that God lists, all of which are incredibly beautiful, God decides to place his compassion as the first attribute to share with Moses. So why compassion? Why not put mercy or long-suffering first in that list? Why not abounding in goodness and truth? Why place compassion above all else? I think that all of these other words which God gives are encapsulated by this idea of God being compassionate. And it's a beautiful framework for understanding the very character and nature of God. And so this morning, I want for us to look at the theme of God's compassion throughout the Bible, looking at a few Old Testament examples and then seeing how it culminates in the New Testament. So the word compassion, whenever we see it in the Bible, uh, it's one specific word that's used, and it's a word, rakum. Rakum is the Hebrew word for compassion. Now, sometimes uh, it's also translated merciful or gracious. So as we're reading through, sometimes you might read it as compassionate, other times merciful, other times gracious. But every verse we're going to look at, the word used is rakum. Now, what's so incredible uh, about God using this word rachum to uh, explain how compassionate he is, is that it comes from the Hebrew word for a womb, which is the word rachem. So the word compassion for the Hebrews, they took that word from their word for a womb. And so to the Hebrew, to the Hebrew uh, speakers, when they heard the word compassion, the immediate thing they thought of was that kind of tender love and care that a mother has for her child in the womb. It was a word intrinsically tied to this, this parental love uh, that you have even before your child is born. So compassion is an act of tenderness and love to someone, the kind of love that a mother has for her child. And so when God describes himself as being compassionate, he's trying to evoke that same imagery in the, the ears of those who hear him. 
that he's like a, a parent who gives love to his children. God's compassion is a tender love like that of a mother for her child. So whenever we see this word, rachem, uh, rachum, sorry, compassion, it's coming from that word for the womb, a mother's womb. And it's interesting, from Exodus onwards, this gets quoted a lot of times. When people want to describe the character of God, they quote from Exodus 34 and verse 6. So, for example, when the Israelites are rebuilding Jerusalem and Nehemiah is the leader, Nehemiah says to the people this, Our ancestors were proud and stubborn. They paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, graciousness. You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. So they borrow a lot of these words from Exodus 34, 6. He's slow to anger. He's merciful and gracious and compassionate. Then you have the prophet Joel. The prophet Joel, he tries to beg the people of Israel to turn away from their sin. And he says, if you do, there's forgiveness. And he borrows from what God described to Moses. He says, don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent. And not to punish. So Joel, when he tries to appeal to the hearts of the people of Israel, he says to them, God is willing to forgive. He's compassionate. And he borrows the, the language uh, from Exodus 34. And then maybe my favorite example uh, of reusing this sentence is the prophet Jonah. Jonah gets really frustrated that God is so compassionate. So when he goes and preaches to Nineveh and the people repent... He then complains to God and he says, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were merciful. You are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. So for Jonah, he actually gets mad at how compassionate God is. He goes, I I wanted these Ninevites to get destroyed. And the reason I didn't want to do any of this is because I know that you're compassionate, that you're slow to anger, that you relent from having to punish if you can. So the prophets in the Old Testament, they all fall back on this description that God gives to Moses about who he is. He's merciful. He's forgiving. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. But maybe my favorite example of the word compassion in the Old Testament is a story where two women come to King Solomon. So each woman, they've recently given birth, but one of the mothers in the night has slept on her child and accidentally killed it. She wakes up, realizes the tragedy, and secretly swaps her child with the child of this other mother during the night. And when that other mother wakes up and sees uh, uh, this child sadly dead in her arms, she looks at it and she knows this isn't her child. And so she, she brings uh, the living child and this other mother to King Solomon. And she pleads her case to resolve the issue. And already we can see the compassion this mother has. First of all, 
She knows what her child look like, looks like. She goes, I know my child. This is not mine. My child is the one that's living. And then she's willing to go to the highest authority in all of Israel to get back her child. We are already seeing that, that love, that, uh, that motherly love that's coming out for her child. Then Solomon, he devises a test to see who the real mother is. He says, cut the baby in half and each of you get to take a half home. And one woman says, perfect, go ahead with that. That works out fine for me. Great plan, Solomon. But the other woman has a completely different response. It says, then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. So the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. Solomon created a very clever test to figure out who was the true mother. And the test was which mother showed compassion, which was the one that was driven, was moved to protect her child from danger. What a beautiful story of a tender, tender love of a mother for her child. God kind of, uh, he reiterates this idea through the prophet Isaiah. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. So he goes, look. Mothers typically don't forget about their children when they're in need. Maybe if it's a bit of a dodgy one, they may forget. But God says, I'm not like that. I'm going to remember you. I'm going to take care of you. So he says, if even earthly mothers have deep compassion for their children, how much more so will I have compassion for you as my children? And the compassion of God, it's always demonstrated when he sees his people in threat of danger. So, for example, when the Israelites are in Egypt, God is moved with compassion to rescue them and bring them out of captivity. Or when God sees the people of Nineveh. He, Nineveh was one of the most evil nations at the time, and yet God knew their sin was ultimately self-destructive to themselves. So God sends Jonah the prophet to get them to turn away. He, he feels compassion for Nineveh, a compassion which Jonah lacks and in fact complains about. He says, God, I knew you were doing this because you're compassionate. I wanted you to destroy them, but instead you wanted to rescue them. So God is moved to compassion when he sees those that he loves hurt or even in threat of danger. Like that mother in Solomon's test, the, her child was in danger and we're told she was moved with compassion. And God's the same when he sees those he loves suffering or those he loves about to suffer or in threat of danger, God is moved with compassion to do something, to intervene. So we've seen throughout history, God does this. He intervenes and he wants to, to help his people. And of course, the greatest suffering imaginable that the human race has gone through is having to live in a world of sin. We're stuck in this world of sin where we're slaves to sin and we're all under the penalty of the law for our sin. So God sees that we're presently 
uh, in harm and that we have future danger as well. And so God is again moved with compassion to do something, to intervene into the human race. He's going to do something, an incredible act of compassion in order to prevent his people from having to suffer. God decides to put an end to human suffering and slavery to sin. He's going to enter into our world. So how appropriate is it that in order to show that Rakum compassionate love, the love of a mother uh, for her child in the womb, that God enters into his creation through the womb of a mother. In order to end human suffering and show Rakum compassion, God enters into creation through a mother's womb. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That's what his whole message was about, having that same tender love that a mother has for a child. And he comes through a mother so that he can fulfill that mission. Even before he started it, even at his birth, we're getting an idea, a picture of the type of ministry that Jesus is going to have on earth. So I want to look at a few stories of how Jesus does this, because this is the ultimate culmination of God's compassion. We see glimpses of it in the Old Testament in some stories. We see the prophets talk about how it's such an intrinsic part of God's character. Uh, we saw such a beautiful story of that, the woman uh, who goes to King Solomon. And now we see that all of it is pointing towards Jesus and his ministry. So let's read through a few passages. We'll jump around a bit in the New Testament to see examples of Jesus' compassion. And the first is in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. This is when Jesus uh, is getting ready to feed the multitude. Or feed the, it's the, the famous feeding of the 5,000 story. Matthew chapter 14. And we'll start in verse 13 and work our way through. Matthew 14, and starting in verse 13, the famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. So we'll pause there. What is it that Jesus has heard? That when Jesus heard it, he departed there. When the verse is just above that, we see the story of John the Baptist beheaded. So Jesus, he's found out the news that John the Baptist, his cousin, has been killed. Jesus hears the news of the loss of this family member, and rightfully so, he just wants some time alone. He, he wants to be alone, get some time to process the fact that his close cousin John has just been executed. But he can't get any time by himself. He tries to get some time alone just to grieve, but the multitudes follow him. And so it says in verse 14, when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. So Jesus showed compassion even when it was entirely inconvenient to him. This was really a time where Jesus wanted to be alone. He departed to a secluded place to avoid the multitude, have some time by himself. The multitude found him. And rather than say, well, this doesn't fit into my schedule, Jesus is moved with compassion for them and heals the sick. I think uh, it makes me think a lot of uh, the way children work. So I, 
I remember, and I'm sure we all have this experience either personally or with our own children. Uh, Children, whenever mom or dad come home from work, what's the first thing they want to do with them? Play. Play with me. Do something with me. You know, that the child wants some attention from their parent when they come back home. Now, typically, when a parent comes back home, are they feeling really uh, rejuvenated and energized or pretty tired? (laughs) They're pretty exhausted. It's been a long day. They've done their nine to five. What they want to do is kind of what Jesus did. Go away, have some time alone first. And yet, a really loving parent will forgo that time alone and spend that time with their children. Even though it's inconvenient to them, even though it doesn't really fit into the schedule that they'd like, the parent feels compassion. They're moved with compassion for that child. They see the child wants attention, they want affection, they want love. And so they go, well, I'm tired and I could use some time, you know, just by myself, but I want it, I'm going to spend it with you. And I think that's exactly how Jesus felt here. He wants time to just grieve over the loss of John. But his heart is so tender that he wants to alleviate the suffering that he sees. He sees people who are sick and he wants to alleviate their suffering. And so he heals them. And then when the people get hungry, he multiplies food for them to eat. Jesus is truly going above and beyond, showing compassion at a time where really we would expect someone to be quite reserved. And yet Jesus is moved with compassion for his people. Have a turn to Mark 6. This is the same story, Mark chapter 6. But Mark gives us a slightly different reason for why Jesus feels moved or compelled to feed the 5,000. In Mark chapter 6. And we'll read from verse 30. It says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all these things. This is about John the Baptist's recent death both what they had done and what they had taught. Pardon me. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So Jesus is so busy that he and the apostles, they don't even have time to have a meal. This is, Jesus certainly deserves some alone time. So it says, They departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. So in Matthew's account, Jesus is moved because he sees people who are sick and have followed him to get healing. And so he heals them. But Mark also adds another dimension. He says, when Jesus looks out at the people, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Or in other words, they they have no one to give them spiritual instruction about the ways of God. The Pharisees, all they cared about really, Jesus says, was putting more and more burdens on the people. Jesus is here to alleviate that burden, alleviate that suffering, and replace bad teaching with good teaching, proper teaching, from the word of God. And then again, Mark tells us that Jesus multiplies food for them. Uh, In fact, he says, look, these people have made a three-day journey to get here. Let's provide some food for them. So in uh, in these stories of Jesus feeding the multitude, 
we see he's motivated, he's moved with compassion to heal the sick, to teach and preach the kingdom of God and the freedom that can be found there. And he miraculously provides food for the people. And this is all while he's just found out about his cousin John having been executed. He's giving up his own time. He's giving up his own convenience to do the loving thing. Two other um, just miscellaneous examples is as Jesus is leaving Jericho, he sees two blind men and the blind man is calling on Jesus to have mercy. And this time the multitude actually tries to silence the blind man. They say, be quiet. Jesus doesn't want to listen to you. But Jesus hears the blind man and Matthew tells us Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. So two, two blind men. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Just another quick example of how Jesus, as he's walking through his ministry, he's leaving town. Everywhere Jesus goes, he seems to see people suffering and want to do something to change it. Another time is... Um, when Jesus comes across a leper, comes across a leper, and the leper asks Jesus to heal him. Now imagine, uh, Jesus, he views us as his children. We're his beloved creation. And leprosy must be one of the the most awful uh, distortions of creation. It's a terrible disease. You lose all feeling of touch. You got leprosy. You'd never be able to touch anyone you love ever again. And your body parts would slowly drop off. Now, perish the thought that it would ever happen. But I think if any of our children had leprosy, it would just wreck our hearts, wouldn't it? Or anyone, to see anyone that we love in our family be inflicted with leprosy would just wreck our hearts. It would tear them in two. So imagine Jesus, he's come down from heaven. He's come down to this world full of sin and suffering. And he sees one of those beautiful creations of his suffering perhaps one of the worst types of sicknesses a person can have. Man, the heart of God, the heart of Jesus must have been so deeply moved when he saw that. And so the man asked Jesus to heal him. And Mark tells us Jesus was moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. The final example uh, is the widow of Nain. Jesus, he's going through a town and he sees a funeral procession and he sees that this mother has lost her only son. She's already lost her husband. She's a widow. Now she's lost her son. And Jesus decides to restore this son to the mother. Luke uh, tells us when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the boy was resurrected from the dead. So all throughout Jesus' ministry, wherever he goes, he's feeding uh, the, the multitudes. He's healing the sick. He's preaching the truth of God's kingdom. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing leprosy. Everywhere Jesus goes, when he sees the suffering of those he loves, he's moved with compassion to do something, to make a change in their lives. And of course, all of these miracles, they're all just pointing forward to the greatest act of compassion that Jesus is going to give. The ultimate act of compassion is, of course, the cross. 
This is where we see, for example, that Jesus heals some people, but he can only heal so many while he's going around Galilee. And yet through the cross and through the defeat of sin, Jesus is going to create a kingdom free of all sickness, free of all disease and death. Jesus, he goes around preaching that there is freedom from sin in the kingdom that he is bringing. And sin is defeated. Its power is lost at the cross. No longer do those who are baptized and enter into the death of Christ have to be slaves to sin. They can instead be slaves to righteousness. Satan is, of course, defeated at the cross. His power is taken away. And even though he continues to tempt and he continues to to muck around with the world around us, he's already been defeated. The cross was his definitive point of defeat. And now he's just waiting for the final execution, the final fulfillment of that defeat that was won at the cross by Jesus. Humanity can now find forgiveness and mercy because of what Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus, of course, suffered the most brutal and intense form of torture and death that maybe is imaginable in human history. What would drive someone to go to those lengths? What, would, what depths does a person have to go to in the love and compassion they have for others to go to a gruesome death like the cross? The challenge to us is if God has shown us such great and immeasurable compassion by giving up his own life to rescue us, how can we not do the same for other people? If God has shown us such great compassion, should not we do the same to other people in our lives? Jesus Christ is the model for everything that we do as a Christian. And so the model of Jesus' ministry should be the path we want to follow as well. A path in which when we see those who are suffering and in need, and there is a way that we can alleviate that suffering, we enter into it and we show compassion. We do something to help those who are in need. Now, what Jesus showed during his ministry was true compassion. It was very true and genuine compassion. But also, if you look around at the world uh, around us today, there's a lot of kind of distortions of this true, beautiful compassion that Jesus has. I've kind of found three, maybe, and maybe you can think of more. Three types of compassion that we'll encounter in our world today that we don't want to emulate. These are forms of compassion that we want to step away from and instead follow the model of Jesus. The first of which I can think of is selective compassion, which is caring for the suffering of some, but not caring about the suffering of others. The true compassion of Jesus doesn't pick and choose between who gets to be helped and who doesn't. So that's a trap that we can fall into, looking at some people suffering and go, well, they're worthy of our compassion, but maybe not these people over there. That's a trap we want to avoid falling into, picking and choosing who's worthy of our compassion. Another very common one we see today is signaling compassion. So this is expressing sympathy for others' suffering, but only to get attention from other people and really not having any intention of helping. It's very common today that uh, when something bad happens in our world or there's some type of tragedy, lots of people like to say and express how bad things are and they don't actually want to help. A lot of the case, a lot of times, uh, particularly if it's something overseas, there may, be not, there may not be active ways we can help. 
But people like to get up on a stage or go on social media or go on TV or whatever it is and talk about how bad they feel about a situation with the motivation just to get attention from other people. There's a way to express sympathy uh, and compassion, but do so in a way that doesn't have the express purpose of wanting to get attention. It's a bit like how the Pharisees, uh, Jesus said about the Pharisees, you do, you do your good works in front of men so you get their attention. The Pharisees liked to go out in the public marketplace and they liked to you know, show how much they were tithing and how they tithed every mint leaf. And Jesus says, you should have forgotten about the mint leaves and prioritized justice and mercy. He said, where was that? So that was a, kind of a, a remnant of the Pharisees that lives on today. There's a temptation to use compassion as a platform to get the attention of others. Instead, we need to do, again, what Jesus said. Our right hand shouldn't even know what our left is doing. We do things to help others, not to gain attention for ourselves, but because it's the right thing to do. It's the calling that Jesus has put onto our hearts. And the third and final one I can think of is toxic compassion. So this is proposing a solution to suffering that actually only causes further harm. Now, you might be thinking, well, what instances can, would, would we find toxic compassion? Well, I think perhaps a, a really good example is uh, the approach of the Victorian government when it comes to LGBT issues. So last year, they passed a bill to basically uh, prevent anyone uh, struggling with, in that LGBT community from getting outside help. And the idea was uh, they, didn't want to, they didn't want people who were struggling with this to come under further harm. Uh, and so this, is, um, this, this was one of the kind of mission statements that you'll find. This is on page three. They say, in, act, in enacting this act, it is the intention of the parliament to affirm that a person's sexual orientation or gender identity is not broken and in need of fixing. So the government, they're looking at people who are suffering and the solution is to say, well, you don't have a problem at all. We're not going to try and fix you. There's no problem. Now, I guarantee if you were to speak to people in that community who are hurting and suffering, many would say that they do feel a sense of brokenness and they have a desire to be restored. And that's really what all of us are like, isn't it? Every sinner is broken and in need of being restored. And whether it's to do uh, with these types of issues or whether it's to do with uh, any other particular sin in our life, the last thing we need is someone to tell us there's nothing to be fixed because then we're just stuck in this state of brokenness. Imagine if as Jesus was walking around and he saw the leper and the leper goes, please, Jesus, heal me. And Jesus looks at the leper and goes, nothing to heal here. You're fine, buddy. And walked on. That would be a toxic form of compassion saying there's nothing wrong, nothing, nothing here to worry about. And this, 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 uh, really worries me and really breaks my heart to read this. This was an example uh, of one of the practices which uh, the Victorian government decided to ban for uh, people in the LGBT community. This is a direct quote from them. A practice includes, but is not limited to the following, carrying out a religious practice, including but not limited to a prayer-based practice. A prayer-based practice. So that in Victoria, and they make it very clear, it's either with or without the consent of the person. So if someone came to you 
and was struggling with their gender identity or sexual orientation. They were struggling and they came to you and said, please, I need you to pray for me. But the Victorian government says, no, you're not allowed to do that. Don't help them out. That's not allowed. That's toxic compassion, isn't it? In trying to propose a solution, it really only continues to hurt and harm those who are really suffering. We know that God is able to heal and restore broken sinners, sinners who are struggling with anything. And yet sometimes solutions are given that just hurt those who are suffering even more. So those are the three types of compassions that I think we encounter in our world today that are just, they're getting close, but they're a bit of a perversion of the true compassion that Jesus shows in his, in his ministry. Choosing, picking and choosing who, doing it just to get the attention of others, or proposing a solution that actually only further hurts those that are in need. So what do we need to do instead? Well, Jesus is the model of what true compassion is. He saw the suffering of others and he didn't discriminate between who deserved his help or not. He didn't say, oh, this leper here... Uh, you get a healing and, uh, you know, this other one, nah, not interested. Imagine if Jesus went to the 10 lepers and he said, oh, I'm going to heal eight out of 10 of you. Jesus healed all 10 of the lepers. Jesus also didn't just vocalize his compassion to win the attention of others. He put his compassion into practice and he did it because it was the right thing to do, because he was driven by that tender love. Jesus also definitely did not look at broken sinners and go, ah, you'll be right, mate. Keep going. You're fine as is. Jesus' ministry was all about healing broken sinners like you and me. Everywhere Jesus went, he healed, he preached, he taught, and he eventually gave up his life. And so the challenge for us is, can we have that same tender heart and compassion towards other people? When we see others suffering, is our instinct immediately to feel that or our hearts a bit hard and we're not immediately driven to compassion? Sometimes we can get desensitized by the suffering of others, particularly if we see it a lot. Oh, it, it just becomes a part of life. Perhaps we need to ask God to send his spirit into us to make our heart more tender, less hard, more tender, so that our, our natural response to seeing suffering is to do what Jesus did, be moved with compassion and do something to help alleviate that suffering. Imagine if as a church we all fostered that same attitude of love and compassion for one another, so deep, so deep that for the Hebrews, compassion was the same love that our mother had for her newborn baby. That's the same love that God has for you and me. What if we could replicate that same love for each other? Whatever way it is that you find that you can help alleviate the suffering of others, let's use the model of Jesus, who through his life, even up to his death, was moved with compassion to alleviate the suffering of others and helped however he could. Let's take on board the challenge that Jesus has set before us in following his ministry and being moved with compassion to help those in need.